Hi everyone, this is Corina and Angel. Welcome to The Human Show, proudly presented and supported by worldpodcast.com. Here we explore the relationships between people, technology and business. Join us on this journey where we interview anthropologists, other researchers and industry people from all over the world, from India to Kenya, US, Europe, to right back here in New Zealand. Hi friends, in today's episode we are talking to Mireille Hildebrandt, a lawyer, philosopher and professor at Radboud University and Freie University. We talk to Mireille about the intersection of artificial intelligence, law and ethics. We talk about the impact of AI and smart technology on the ethical dimension of human life. We talk about how AI creates predictability of human behaviors and what are the implications of that. Lastly, she shares three pieces of advice for companies interested in integrating ethics into artificial intelligence programming. We hope you enjoy it. Hi friends, we are here today with Mireille um, Hildebrandt. Hi Mireille. Hi Corina. I am very, very excited to, to have you on our podcast. Um, and thank you again for making the time for this. Um, it's all my pleasure, I hope. <laughs> um, so I'm going to dive right into it and uh, go into our first question, which is tell us a bit more about you. What, what has your career path been so far um, in this space? Yes, well, maybe it's good to, to start. I saw that you have been, that you have a slight focus on anthropologists. Mm hmm. And my first dive into the academics was anthropology, actually. Oh, nice. Um, yes, isn't it nice? And for a long time, I used to say, because after that I went into law, for a long time I said, you know, anthropology is a science and law is just a profession. Um, I wouldn't say that now, but, well, that, that shows how serious I took uh, anthropology. But I got heavily distracted uh, at the personal level, actually. I traveled quite in the beginning of my studies to my parents-in-law in India. So I did some real participatory observation. And, uh, well, lots of things happened. So at some point, let's, let's go to what is relevant. Here, I, I wrote a PhD uh, in the law faculty, this PhD was in criminal procedure, but I used anthropology, history, and philosophy all around punishment. So what is mm. punishment? What is punishment in a society without a state? Uh, what happens if the state comes in? What happens uh, with the rise of the rule of law? That was the PhD. There was also some political theory in that. And I, I, I focused very much on uh, philosophy and law. Mm. So the result of that was that I got invited to a project on a totally different, seemingly a totally different subject, which was promoted, uh, headed by Bruno Latour and Isabel Stengers. Wow. Uh, as we probably all know, yeah. <laughs> some sort of um, ethnography. Isabel Stengers, I think, is a, is a real fantastic uh, philosopher. Mm. So, and... Uh, the leader of that project uh, was Serge Goodwith. He's my colleague here in uh, Brussels. Um, this was an extremely challenging, risky, exciting uh, project. It was also interesting because I moved from one part of academia, very Dutch, to a very international, French-oriented uh, uh, project. Mm -hmm. And the interesting thing was that that project 
was about the responsibility of scientists and the sciences in a constitutional democracy. So it brought together like philosophy of science and uh, law, mm. democracy, etc. What makes all this relevant for this podcast is that uh, I started heading the work package, as this is called, which was officially called Correlated Humans. So that was about all these new techniques like knowledge discovery in database and what we would now call machine learning. Hmm. This was the beginning of this century, 2002, it started. So people were mostly talking about profiling and about KDD, knowledge discovery databases. Mm. Not yet about AI. AI was something old school, was about uh, expert systems and knowledge management. Uh, and this was sort of upcoming, very inductive, very mm. exciting. So the work package was called Correlated Humans because these techniques enable software machines and the people behind that, the companies behind it, the government agencies behind it to correlate a lot of data that were previously thought trivial and to infer totally unexpected sort of information and knowledge. What is interesting is that we renamed that work package in the course of the project, it was a five-year project, mm. and called it Correlatable Humans. So from correlated to correlatable. And mm. some people might think, well, okay, what's, what's in the name? But we wanted to pick out that ultimately human beings are too unexpected, too reinventing themselves to correlate them. So you can correlate them, of course, you can correlate them, but you can correlate them in numerous ways. They can resist that correlation, they can mm -hmm. turn it inside out, they can do unexpected things. So we said what matters here is to emphasize that we are definitely correlatable, but that doesn't define us. Mm -hmm. I then started on all sorts of other projects, one in particular, working a lot with computer scientists. And I discovered that I found that extremely interesting. And because they, uh, let's say computer scientists have something with mathematics, um, maybe slightly different from computer engineers. And this very mathematical perspective, this, this uh, clarity, there's a kind mm. of pure she uh, spoke to me, and um, then I started really focusing on knowledge discovery in databases, machine learning, and uh, I edited a book called Profiling the European Citizen, which was a collaboration of uh, lawyers, philosophers, computer scientists, social science, where we really, and it came out in 2008, so uh, slightly over 10 years ago, we really looked into how do these profiles, which are extremely dynamic, how are they constructed? What goes into that? How does that matter for the mm. output? And what does it mean for people targeted with such profiles? Does it reduce their agency? Does it reduce their, their choices? Or does it, uh, on the contrary, extend uh, their agency and their choices? Mm. In the end, I was invited to apply for a chair at a computer science department uh, in the Netherlands. And I, I've been there since 2011. I taught law to computer science now for eight years to master students of computer science. In the beginning, that was mostly uh, digital security, computer scientists, which is a very particular brand. Um, you could say that's all about hiding and compression. <laughs> 
things into into encryption is is basically compression and of course mm -hmm. and uh, by now part of the course is followed by the data scientists and i have come to the conclusion that data science is also compression because you have this huge data set like mm -hmm. thrills of data in in one bag and what you want is to discover one mathematical function usually extremely complex mm -hmm. um, and, and preferably then after some time when you're training an algorithm to find that mathematical function you want it to be as simple as possible so it's like Occam's razor but mm -hmm. what you're doing is compressing the entire database into this mathematical uh, function I find that a very interesting way of looking at it I tested it out with, with data scientists and I, I find that they sort of say yeah well you can look at it that way and for them it's nothing surprising and my point is okay you can do that compression but you can do different compressions of the same data depending on your goal so if mm. you're looking to profit uh, you will for instance try to find correlations between certain data points uh, of persons that you can get hold of their location their mobility based on their locations earning capacity, uh, their spending patterns. And then you want to, that mathematical formula to define their purchasing behavior. So uh, probably them to buy your stuff and not your competitor stuff. And um, well, that's a very simple way of putting it. They, you may have all sorts of other goals. It doesn't necessarily have to be uh, purchasing. You may want people to look at certain information you may also want uh, people to not vote. You may want people of a certain party not to vote. You may want people to vote for a certain party. And you may simply want to confuse a lot of people totally and, uh, and completely. Hmm. All that is now enabled by these uh, technologies. Hmm. Then... I wrote a book which, which I think is relevant also here. Uh, it's called Smart Technologies and the Ends of Law, mm -hmm. where the ends is between brackets. So it's about the end of law, law being finished and taken over by algorithms, for instance. But it's also about the ends of law. So why do we actually need law? Why would it be a loss if, if, we, if we settle everything by algorithm? Uh, mm -hmm. It's a bit uh, reductive. But one, one of the things that I try to show in that book is that what is so interesting about uh, these new technologies is that they, they anticipate us. Mm -hmm. And whether they anticipate us right or wrong is not really the point. Because based on their anticipation, they're making all sorts of decisions. So they will decide to show us something or not to show us something. Give us access to something or not. They, they may decide about whether you're going to have an interview for a job or not. Uh, they may decide uh, whether you have access to education or not. And this anticipation is very difficult for us to foresee because the decisions are in the back end of systems, um, not on the front end, not in the interfaces. We don't really notice it because our interface already reduces sort of what is happening on the back end. And so I have I have developed in that book somewhere a notion what I call the new animism. So 
uh, these these systems are like mindless agents. So they have agency, but not like us. They don't have a mind. They don't have any inner awareness, Mm -hmm. not of the world and not of themselves. So even animals are far different because they have a consciousness which these machines don't have. Maybe we can better talk about that as a second question. And the last thing I want to say about my uh, my own career path, etc., is that last year I was awarded uh, an ERC Advanced Grant for Computational Law. This is something slightly different. It's really a focus on what happens if you do law with these algorithms, if you do prediction of court cases. Somebody has a problem with somebody else and they say, if I take that person to court, am I going to win the case? And the idea is that at some point you just go online to a certain portal and you fill in some details and the portal will say, well, 86% chance and and if you pay, it might say um, 93% chance if you choose this attorney or if you go to that court or if you can add those uh that sort of evidence. And then you can decide for yourself whether you have the money, whether you want to waste the energy on the court case. Um, Well, it may also be that courts themselves are going to use this technology. So before even doing the looking into the arguments themselves, they will have a system that, that sort of does argumentation mining in previous cases and the relevant uh, other sources. Well, so before they start, they might get output on that. Uh, and this will have, of course, an enormous influence on uh, how, they, how they know the law, because uh, this will come first and, and they will be tempted to rely on that, uh, depending on a lot of things. So this is going to be a five-year project. I've now selected three researchers in Brussels. I'm going to uh, appoint also two researchers at the computer science other university and they are going to interact with each other because I believe it's extremely important that lawyers understand how this works um, the sooner the better and that that should help lawyers to think about things like liability responsibility mm-hmm. duty of care uh, you know the lawyer thing I think it's no longer possible if you mm-hmm. refuse to look at that so that that's the extent answer to your first question oh nice I I, I already have like 20 questions in my mind based on this <laughs> uh, it's 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 really a fascinating territory but um moving into our, our second question and just before I think it links quite well with with some of the points that you made in the first one which is my interest in AI and ethics comes from my question into how does this predictability create effect and how do we mitigate that effect? Um, and I think that that's, I think to a certain extent, it links to the way you talked about these algorithms and how they aim to, to predict. And, and um, I think with that aim of predictability comes also an intent of effect. So, uh, and for me, that's kind of like the pathway into the second question, which is how do you define and approach um, the concept of ethics and, um, and artificial intelligence? Yes, so I I really like the way you frame this. I have not heard anybody frame it that way. And uh, I I like it because it's very short. And I think most people who know anything about these things will immediately say, yeah, that's a a crucial question. Uh, For for a long time, I've I've used uh, a saying by a famous uh, philosopher of science, Robert Merton, who 
got it from, I think, two psychologists, Thomas and Thomas. Mm -hmm. And Robert Merton says, if men define a situation as real, it's real in its consequences. Mm. And that's exactly what you're saying. So if, if we all think that uh, it's not allowed to murder people, and if you do that, you will be put in jail. If we all think that, and we, we institutionalize that, like in the law, etc., then it, it's going to be real. So it's extremely important to see that level of reality. Like, I, I have a, a, a mouse here, a computer mouse, and, and its mode of existence is different from, uh, let's say, uh, well, the institution of marriage. So I can hold this in my hand. I, I can say, okay, this is the computer mouse. This is not the computer mouse. This is where it stops, and this is, mm -hmm. I can identify it. I will do the same thing with marriage, but it, I can't hold it in my hand. It's not tangible. Mm -hmm. Still, it has a very real existence. We all know that for a whole number of reasons which are not necessarily romantic. It's also about who's going to pay the debts of the other partner, etc., uh, etc. Et so I used that phrase and I tweaked it. And I said, we are now in an era where if machines define a situation as real, it is real and its consequences. Mm -hmm. So micro-targeting, uh, trying to get people to vote uh, or not vote, etc., political micro-targeting, in a way defines certain choices that people have as real. But because of the continuous predictions and because of the decisions that this machinery, this software, the back-end system, uh, decisions they make, it becomes real. <laughs> so there is there is this turn from the prediction into effect. Relating this to artificial intelligence, like how would I define it? I, I see two types of definitions. So on the one hand, I would emphasize that artificial intelligence is an instrument, it's a tool, it's a technique, and is very much a one-trick pony um, in contradiction to what Elon Musk thinks and, and many others where the most vocal, vocal uh, speakers that write books about this are not always people who really know how it works. So it's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. Think of the, the chess and go games, uh, Jeopardy, which I find even more exciting, um, image recognition, which is often now outperforming uh, human beings, driving a car. It's amazing. But I would emphasize that it has very severe limitations, that this idea of artificial general intelligence is at this moment not at all happening. And the people who developed deep learning and machine learning are saying this is not going to lead to artificial general intelligence. And there is this whole discussion between people like Gary Marcus and Jan LeCun, where Jan Le Kuhn, who is ed, head AI with Facebook, says, look, um, uh, deep learning is, yeah, it's limits, but it's fantastic. It can do so much more, and, and we need to invest in that. And where Gary Marcus say, yeah, of course, but um, if you want to really move on, you have to acknowledge that it's extremely inefficient. You need so many data to train uh, for a very simple something. 
that means it's also very difficult for a system when the situation changes to uh, adapt to that because it will again need all this data. And uh, Gary Marcus says you 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 need to in, to input prior knowledge because um, that's how we work and uh, the balance between inductive learning and deductive learning. So uh, from the prior knowledge has to be recast. Um, mm -hmm. So I would say that good old-fashioned artificial intelligence, so the, the decision trees, the, we decide how the machine should think, translate that into machine language, and then the machine does what we say. It has been discarded as totally irrelevant, but it's sort of coming back in combination as a hybrid with this very inductive stuff. And I think as long as we realize that, that raises a whole series of new questions, who is going to determine that prior knowledge? Who's going to articulate it? My God, those people will have a power we can't even begin to conceive of. How is that knowledge going to interact with the inductive uh, stuff, um, etc.? So a whole new range of questions is coming up. So that's one way of looking at saying, okay, it's just a tool. Uh, it can do very good things, but it's always for a specified task. And uh, all these fantasies of unsupervised learning, meaning that you, you collect a lot of data, then you throw an algorithm in, and the algorithm will rise like a snake from it and, tell, and, and suddenly be uh, artificial general intelligence. It's total and complete nonsense. And anybody who knows anything about it will tell you that. That's one thing. Uh, so look at it as a tool. That's also important, I think. The other thing is what, what I already said in the beginning. So I think there is a mindless agency there. And I think it is extremely important that we, um, as human beings, realize that there are agents now that have no consciousness, no self-reflection, yes, in a mathematical sense, but not in the conscious, no self-consciousness, that are making all sorts of decisions uh, very dynamically about what I call our choice architecture. And um, I don't just mean that we get to choose between red wine and white wine, but whether we will ever get a choice about wine, mm -hmm. um, choices about education, uh, employment. Think of um, the gig economy, so the, the uh, sharing economy, which is, of course, a very uh, dangerous, misleading mm -hmm. aim for a particular business model. Um, Okay, what, what fascinates me there is that these systems sort of are continuously profiling us, basing decisions on it, and, and we, we have difficulty of looking at the back end. So, how are we going to anticipate us? So, when we move around in the normal world, we have some idea about how others anticipate us and how institutions do that. Not because we have opened their brains and then looked like with a saw. <laughs> and I look inside and say, what a, what a, what a wet uh, mess, uh, and, and it doesn't teach me anything. But by, by speaking about it, and um, the, the reality is that we never really know what other people are going to understand of what we do. We are never really sure how they will respond to us. The same goes for institutions. So we have found different ways of consolidating that and, and providing some security, uh, sorry, certainty about that, um, and uh, thus enabling trust to move around. But the interesting thing is in our world that uh, certainty is always contestable. 
in principle. And, and there's always a learning process and it's always shifting. And actually we should learn the same sort of attitude with these machines, with these um, uh, agents. Mm. And it will be far more difficult because they are a different type of agents. They're not in a skin bag, mm. to quote um, Andy Clark, who, who talks about human beings as we think that we are in a skin bag, so that we are defined by what is inside our skin bag. And he says that's wrong because we outsource things to our environment, and that's very often physical things. Paper and writing is a is the obvious example that we sort of take for granted. Uh, so he's written a book about uh, how uh, a mobile phone, and he wrote it before the smartphone, how that becomes an extension of us, and that it's uh, misleading to think that we stop at the at at the skin. Mm-hmm. So that we must acknowledge that. Uh, that that phone is actually a part of us, a very important part, and with the smartphone that becomes very clear. There, there's a famous philosopher, Merleau-Ponty, who said, try to imagine a woman who has a hat, you know, very charming hat, feather on it, and she's, she's used to wear that, that hat because it's end of the 19th century, and she goes to parties, and when she goes through the door, she has learned to move like that a little bit, very elegantly, uh, such that the head doesn't come off because it, the feather <laughs> goes. And he says what happens there is that her body is extended till the end of the tip of the feather. She can actually, she can actually feel hmm. how to move. So her awareness of her body is extended. And I always find the best analogy in a car so if you want to park a car backwards without any uh, smart software in your car that's only going to work if at some point that car sort of becomes part of your body Mm -hmm. Um, if it doesn't and you you are thinking too much well you'll have to do it 10 times and you'll probably (laughs) bump into the other guy so this is about that uh, even human beings have these very extensive tentacles into their environment that they depend on. We all know that if your smartphone gets lost, uh, that you're in deep trouble, yeah. <laughs> especially if you're totally. Yeah. Okay, so there, there is this uh, mindless agency in the book that I mentioned. There is a chapter on uh, the Japanese way of dealing with non-human agents. And I like that so much because people always ask me, are you talking about spirits and ghosts? Mm. I always say, no, not at all. I'm, I'm talking about mindless. And the Japanese interact with things which they attribute agency, which they uh, respect uh, in, in various ways. But if you ask them, do you believe that that is, uh, that that is your, your dead grandfather or do you believe that Mount Fuji uh, is a ghost? They will probably look at you like, I don't know what you mean. Mount mm. uh, Fiji is a is is something very special, and we we have to pay our respects to it. And my grandfather is definitely dead. I'm sure about that. I saw his bones, but I I'm paying my respects to to him. And and they they're not talking about a belief that mm. they're not even I think talking about a belief in, but they're interacting. They're interacting and. That's very interesting because we have this arrogant idea that things have no agency and uh, we can just choose them whatever way we want. 
So there is this famous Kantian philosopher Kant who said, human beings, you must always, even when you use them, respect their autonomy. Hmm. Kant says. And actually the flip side of Kant is that that means if you're dealing with a non-human, you can just treat it like whatever way you want. So your cat, you can just throw it out of the room if it begins to wail. And yeah. um, this house, yeah. if... if if I don't like it, I'm going to buy another one. I'll just throw it in the waste paper bin and never think about it um, because it's not a human being, so I don't have to respect it. That already moves us into ethics, right? Yeah, so yeah. One of the ideas about ethics is that this is the main thing. So we should respect others uh, as autonomous agents. And you could say when you look at the business model of uh, micro-targeting, if you if you read some stuff from advertising agencies, not from advertisers, that's different. That's if you have a business and you want to sell toothpaste, you're an advertiser. But it's the advertising agency now, which is usually caught up in one of the big platforms, that mm-hmm. is sometimes very explicitly trying to diminish the agency of the users of the platform, um, trying to find out via, for instance, psychometric uh, research psychometric research, how we can nudge people Mm. or prevent people from uh, behaving in a certain way. From a Kantian perspective, you are allowed to use other people. Some, many, many people say, no, that's not allowed. Kant says it's not allowed. Just read him. He says, if you use another human being, you should respect their autonomy. Mm. So, yeah, sorry. So then, therefore, I'm thinking, like, if you build algorithms where you try to, to, to build predictive models on behavior, how do you respect autonomy while in allowing that autonomy to be inside the algorithm? Is that possible? That's the $1 million question. <laughs> and, and I also like the way you ask it, because you're asking the question from the perspective of how could we build that and yeah. it's possible. Yes. And, and I like the how could we build it instead of let's have a, a theoretical discussion about whether it's possible. Mm. There, There's a very nice book by Pfeiffer and Bombard. Um, they are AI uh, uh, professors. Um, I think it's called uh, Shaping the Mind or something like that. Oh, yeah, How the Body Shapes the Mind, something like that. And they're saying if you want... Uh, really intelligent non-humans, if you want to answer the question whether it's possible, go build them. Mm. And go build them for the real world, so not on your machine mm. or uh, a robot in the confines of, a, of an industry, of a factory. Um, no, build something and, and build it for navigating uh, both in the physical and in the mental sense uh, even though they do not have a mind, uh, navigating our world. And by trying to think of how to do that and actually doing it, you learn much more about the limits and the possibilities than by having uh, very interesting uh, discussions and in the meantime only building systems that are living between brackets, uh, between inverted commas, on uh, machines, on, on servers. I... I think that the jury is out on mm. the answer to your question, but I do think this is the big challenge. So mm. let's build 
let's build all these wonderful platforms, social media, search engines, um, without trying to manipulate people, without making them vulnerable to a manipulation that is basically very hard to evade because your choice architecture is determined by the mm. system. So I, I, I totally agree this is the question and, and in comes, of course, political economy. And then I go back again to ethics. So for me, the function of the law is to enable companies to behave ethically. Mm. Now, if a company does what you're suggesting, they might be pushed out of the market because another company mm. is not going to be bothered. So if there is not a law that levels the playing field and puts there a threshold, if you are not going to respect the agency of your consumers, your customers, then you are going to go out. You're going to be liable. You will have an injunction against you saying you have to now stop doing this. Mm. And for instance, every day that you do not comply, you're going to pay 500,000 euros or 30,000 or whatever. Yeah. Every day, every day. And we're going to check. So Article 79 of the GDPR basically enables this. You can mm. ask Facebook, I can tell Facebook, I want an account with you, but I want you to stop additional processing. So you can process all the data you need to give me this service, mm -hmm. but as soon as you don't need it anymore, you have to delete it. And you cannot, in the meantime, get all sorts of other data that you do not need to provide me the service. Mm -hmm. If Facebook then says, uh, well, I'm sorry, uh, that's not allowed, you can either join and consent or you go out. Now, mm -hmm. this seems to be prohibited under the GDPR. That means instead of going for compensation, doing a tort action and wanting money for uh, damage, where it's nearly impossible to prove that there is actual damage at a level that can be identified and, and, and paid out, you can go to court and say, look, I've asked Facebook to stop processing additional data. According to Article 7.4, they cannot refuse me the service because I'm allowing them to process the data that is necessary for the provision of that service. I want you to order them to stop the additional processing. Now, this is not yet being brought to court this way, but if it does, courts are going to make decisions. They're going to ask the court in Luxembourg, the highest court of the union. If that court says, uh, yes, Facebook will have to comply, then they will have to change their business model. And of course, not just Facebook, all the others. And then there is this threshold in the market. Mm -hmm. In a sense, Facebook can also afford to do that because it will know that its competitors are under the same rule. Yeah. Now, I can see there are a lot of challenges there because at this moment, a lot of people outside Europe and the United States mm -hmm. and Australia etc., are heavily dependent on Facebook, Twitter, Google yeah. as a free service. So it would be very arrogant of Europeans to say, uh, yeah, well, what a pity, but uh, we have to move to a subscription model because we want our autonomy to be respected. Yeah, yeah. And what a pity that your autonomy doesn't even come into play because you have very different worries at this moment. So I'm very much aware of that. There are uh, colleagues of mine like Lynette Taylor, Seda Gorses, Zeynep, uh, Tufeki, 
who are writing about this, who are who are interacting with uh, people outside these developed countries, um, mm-hmm. and, and we're seriously thinking about this. I'm not the person that has all the answers. Yeah, yeah. But we really have to think about that. So yeah. for ethics, um, I, I think I'm a bit worried about the fact that in the Anglo-American discourse, uh, there is this utilitarian ethics. Mm. So they mm. have the, the, the Kantian ethics, but that's usually at the university where yes. the people with Kantian ethics sit, but the yeah. business yes. and the politics runs on yeah, and I also wanted to ask you in connection to that about the daily governance of this topic. Um, and I have a, I have a personal experience to share. Um, I was scammed on the Facebook marketplace. So um, I wanted to buy an item and then it ended up that I made the payment and that particular person was not a real person. So, of course, um, I'm in the Netherlands, in Amsterdam, so I decided to go to the police and report it. So I go to the police, to, to the police station. I actually physically go to the police because I have several friends that told me that it's a very special situation when this happens online and you want to connect it to uh, the law in that way. So I went to the station and I explained my case to the police and they said they, they can't do anything about it. They said that I need to talk to Facebook. And, you know, I had I experienced myself in my body, like at that moment, a very frightening um, feeling. You know, because uh, I didn't realize how much I relied on the law, on the, you know, on the, on the police station in case something happened, that they would be there to support me. And I felt, yeah, so uh, it was very interesting to kind of feel that. And then I went back and um, I wrote a post on the Facebook marketplace in order to warn other people of, of that particular individual. And that was all I could do. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's... Uh that's an extremely, uh, also the way you describe it, because you say, I, I felt frightened because I suddenly realized that the monopoly of violence that we have, mm. that is supposed to protect me, yes. uh, suddenly doesn't protect me. And, and the police says, well, go to, uh, this, is, um, this, is, this is like a mechanism that, that often, when it's about so-called small, case, small claims, mm. Which, for let's say most people, are the, the the real claims that they face every day. Yeah. Uh, that people who are thinking about the law, policymakers, etc., are sometimes very denigrating about. So, if I have a problem with somebody and it's about fifty euros, uh, I remember I had a problem with a telco company a very long time ago. Let, let's not go into details, but. Yeah, I, I interacted with them via their help desk. Um, the problem with the help desks these days is that their help desks, they look into the same system that you look in from your, uh, so you've all, you already know what they're going to say. They're going to keep on repeating that either it is not true what you say because the system says it's not true, and, and, and whatever you say, they're not listening. They say, I can see in the system, it's not true what you're saying. Or they say, yeah, but that's not possible with us. And they mm. keep on repeating that. So, And then after that, they tell you, um, Madam, I'm only allowed to speak with you for four minutes. And we've now spoken for seven minutes. And, and you can actually hear the fear in the, in the person's mm. voice because they're going to be thrown out if they do that. Yeah. This is so interesting because they might have a screen in front of them which says this is a client 
you can spend whatever time you want on because it's an important client. This is a client uh, we don't care about. So if the client leaves, uh, no problem. Don't spend more than three minutes, blah, blah, blah. So mm-hmm. this is their predictions. Their predictions, but they're facts for the person who's sitting behind the screen and they're interacting with me based mm-hmm. on that. So anyway, I called the consumer organization and I explained the situation and their answer was... Oh, but this happens to everybody. We can't start working on that. And I was so flabbergasted. They said, go for the arbitration. I went for the arbitration. It cost me an enormous amount of time. It was nonsensical. I I solved my own problem, actually, by doing something that is prohibited. I unlocked my SIM card, which was not allowed. I solved my own problem. But that, well, you know, you can see that the whole the whole idea of the rule of law, which is based on, okay, if people violate certain terms, then there is a moment when you can actually require the force of the law to, to force them to comply with mm. the law. Now, the, the answer is always, yeah, but this is just about 50 euros. And uh, we're not going to invest all this effort on the side of the courts and whole system to put that right. And I think that's extremely wrong because... 50 euros can be nothing to one person and quite a lot for another. Mm-hmm. On top of that, we're talking about sequences of 50 euros. We're talking about government agencies that suddenly decide that what you thought you had a right to in terms of uh, benefits uh, is going to be stopped. Why? Because of a prediction that has mm-hmm. become a fact, etc., um, etc. Et so sometimes these days I say if we do things that way, yeah. These yellow hashes, I don't know the English term. So these these people that wear these yellow little coats, they yeah. are protesting on the street, they yes. are very unorganized, at least seemingly it's probably enabled to a large extent by social media. So be interesting to, to know the back end of this whole yeah. movement. That, that would be interesting, but at the same time, I think we should take very seriously that people feel uh, not respected, not mm-hmm. respected. Yeah. yeah. And I, I wanted to ask you, moving into our next question, what do you think is the role of, of, the, acad- of the academic space um, in kind of supporting both the government and the, and the private sector um, to, to, to further their approach into this space? And, and how do you see that relationship play out? I, I will then talk about my own role as yeah. an academic. Uh, that means um, I will take a legal perspective. I think that the GDPR is an ex- extremely intelligently developed, designed law. So mm-hmm. it's it's a bit complex, but once you move into it, you see that there are compromises in the articles, which are resolved basically in the recitals. That's how legislation for 28 states works. So if the member states don't agree, sometimes it works to push out something from the article to the preamble. But um, mm-hmm. is used to interpret the article. So if you have a good court, it will return. So the GDPR, fundamental rights law, but also liability law, the ability to file an injunction, like I just said, consumer law. There is a directive in Europe on unfair uh, contract terms, which is not yet really explored in academia, yes, but not yet in practice sufficiently in the courts. What happens if you take an account with a social media service uh, and basically you have to click that you agreed with their 
terms and services. So what does that mean in terms of clauses that are void because European law and member states law says that sort of clauses are simply void. They, they do not count. So you can violate them and the service provider should not punish you for that. Unfair commercial practices law. So competition law, I think, is going to be the next big thing. Competition law is failing us because we now have very big platforms that have horizontal as well as vertical integration of all kinds of different functionalities, uh, services. So the advertising agencies have been bought by these platforms. They are part of them. Anybody who thinks about it will say, how is it possible that this was allowed? Now, there is extremely interesting work, both in the United States and in Europe, about the history of competition law and how this happened. So there is Lina Khan. She's a, a young person who is who has written fabulous articles in uh, Yale and Harvard Law Review, for instance, on th this history. So what she says is originally before mid-century, 20th century, before mid-20th century, competition law was about how to prevent concentration of power, mm -hmm. monopolies, monopolies, how to prevent them. And a sign of such a monopoly was a high consumer price. It was a sign of a monopoly. Then somewhere, I think in the 60s, 50s, 60s, 70s, this was turned around. And actually that comes from the Chicago School of Law, uh, economics, law and economics, uh, economics first, where it was said, no, the goal of competition law is a low consumer price. If that can be reached by monopolies, it's fine. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> And basically, that is what the courts have started applying. So now, if you provide a free service, there is no consumer price. So how could anybody object? So it becomes much more complicated then. How can you prove that Google, on the back end of its systems, mm -hmm. is having preferential treatment for its own stuff? Under the old regime, just the fact that Google had so much market power would be simply in itself the problem. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that this is, in the upcoming years, the field of competition law is going to be very exciting on the side of academia. And so I, I think we need excellent research there. So not ideological, not people who say we're against governments or we're against mm. the industry, mm. because then, then you're going to do sloppy research. No, we need people who are really interested in what happened. Why have companies started behaving like this? Yeah, yeah. So, Sergio Brin and Larry Page wrote an article, I think it was beginning of the 90s or 1997, in which they explained page rank. So, this is the, the highly smart algorithm that suddenly made people start using this engine because if you work with frequency, so if you're looking on the web for the word bank and you just look at how it is used in terms of frequency, you're probably going to give all people uh, stories about uh, a bench. Like if you use uh, hyperlinks and, and slightly more complicated than that. So if you look at sites, pages that other sites link to, then you might find more relevant information. And if you can couple that with uh, a small measure of personalization based on search history, mm -hmm. it become extremely relevant for people. 
So when they explained the PageRank algorithm, they had an annex. And in that annex, they literally said, this algorithm should not be exploited commercially, comma, because we all know what will happen then. Hmm. This should remain in the academic sphere. Now, just that one sentence, just that one sentence, it explains everything. So think of the internet. Mm-hmm. There was, that's not proprietary. It's not that the people who developed it put patents on it. Yeah. Think of the world web. It's not proprietary. It was developed in academia, actually. Mm-hmm. Now think what would have happened if, if Larry Page and Sergey Brin had remained within academia and developed this further. What if the circumstances had been conducive for them to do this? Mm. We would live in a totally different world. They actually acted against their own advice. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I tend to say, okay, you can blame that on them as a person. But I, I think that's not the most interesting way to talk about it. Let, let's look at the incentive structure. They yeah. must have seen, Mark Zuckerberg must have seen, Within the United States, to to make this work, we have to we have to to make it commercial. So Mark Zuckerberg, uh, many people think that guy is only interested in money. I'm totally and completely convinced he is not. He has enough, uh, and of course he he knows about markets, so he knows that he has to keep position. He had an online discussion with uh, Dawkins. And Dawkins asked him, what, what is it that you would really like to know, research, find mm-hmm. out? And Zuckerberg said, well, what I really would like to know if, is there is one fundamental mathematical law that underlies human intercourse. And then he was silent. For oh, a wow. Okay. And then he said, I bet there is. And then I said, okay, we know what you're after. You're mm-hmm. after this. Because you believe, rightly or wrongly, that based on these data, you're going to find that mathematical law. And let's say you want to do good with that. Mm. The difference between law and ethics is I would say, look, it's fantastic that you want to find that mathematical law. I don't think it exists, but you, you go ahead, find it. You want to do good. That's great. But I don't want to be dependent on your understanding of the good. Yeah, yeah. In the 18th century in Europe, you had enlightened despots. Like mm. uh, in Russia, in Germany, there were emperors that uh, they were absolutists. So they had all the power, but they wanted to do good. And actually, they did a lot of good. Mm. We decided then in Europe in the course of the 18th, 19th century that that's not what we want. We don't want to depend on the benevolence of an absolute ruler. We want to be able to send that ruler home if we, the people, think he should go home. Now, we have entered a position whether, where we have something similar in the business environment where, where the leaders of these companies, with, let, let's assume, good intent, Let's just assume that with good intent are determining for us what is good for us. And yeah. I don't any of that. I love Google search engine. Yeah. I don't know. I would not be the same Mireille. Mm-hmm. I could not at any time of the day in the middle of a conversation yeah. when I'm working, go to Google. So I, I think it's that terms like awesome, amazing, fabulous. Mm-hmm. 
their their emotional terms, but they don't even describe the extent to which we are made by these uh, systems. But we should reinstate a level playing field. We should. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah and, I th- and I think law is very important. Yeah, you were talking about uh, competition law, but I wanted to, I know I shouldn't ask this because we are uh, nearing the end, but I'm so curious, so I, I will ask it. Um, so you were talking about competition law in Google and Facebook, but I wanted to ask you about employment law, um, the gig economy and Uber. And if you have any any thoughts of that, because for me, I mean, I can see from my own Uh, point of view so many the the better aspects of google and the better aspects of facebook but when i when i use uber it's very hard for me to um uh, uh, how do you say to justify to myself that plat price when i know what is going on behind it but the convenience and the price sometimes they just they just push you to to call because it's so easy so i just wanted to ask if you could talk a bit to that okay So what you are describing is on the side of the users of Uber, uh, the manipulability that we have become aware of, but that we sort of accept because uh, that's how it is now. That, that's, that's a very important perspective. And I, I dare say that the rise of, for instance, Uber has made the consumer experience with regular taxis better. Mm. Because lots of them now have apps where, where I just sit at home and I, I order one and I pay online and I'm sort of, uh, so I have the convenience of Uber. It would never yeah. have happened yeah. probably without Uber. So there I see, even in terms of competition, a positive effect. I'm actually far more worried about the people that drive the car. Yeah, yes. Yes. So there is manipulability of the user, but it's actually the manipulability yes. of the people that take. So I live in Brussels and, and like probably everywhere we have the kangaroo and the uh, eat now and whatever it's called. So you phone and you say, I want this meal in, in 35 or 40 minutes or you do it via an app. And there very often I see these guys on a cycle mm. and I've, I've read about their, their situation Mm. And I feel like, wow, this is like modern slavery. Yes. So yes. The, the neoliberal idea, you know, mm. there is somebody who just wants to work uh, two hours a day and, and uh, for the rest of the day wants to start his own company. So it takes these various little jobs, a sharing economy, these sort of jobs. And it sounds wonderful. Mm. But it's, of course, not how not it true. works. No. And this is this is why I really think that the combination of competition law, labor law, mm. and the section when uh, so you can see in different member states that there are now different types of uh, court judgments where sometimes it is said these people are simply employees and they have to be treated as employees that were paid as employees, and sometimes it is said this service is simply a taxi service, so it has to comply with all the regulations about safe driving, having the proper uh, certification, etc., etc. I think that's necessary, but I still also think that this new sharing economy gave a shock to existing sort of laid-back, mm-hmm. uh, also in many ways monopolies, that were also not functioning well. So. Mm-hmm. We're a little bit in a state of turmoil, and I, I want to again emphasize the law as a not not as a means to constrain full stop, but as a means to constrain in such a way that it sets people 
people free, that it affords people who would otherwise be down on the ground to 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 not just lift them up and, and, and cuddle them. That's not the idea, but to to enable them to get on their feet, to get back. And and yes, sometimes people have to be cuddled. Mm. Yes, and yes. We're cuddling people who are already doing very well. And let's not go into details here, but... Uh, okay, so maybe maybe I should end with uh, w- one of my favorite legal philosophers, John Rawls, mm-hmm. who developed the Maximin Principle. So John Rawls wrote a book of 600 pages, often quoted, uh, one of my very dear legal philosophers who, who went with me through this book. He said John Rawls could have written it in five pages, but you know how it is <laughs> so at that point in time. So what I like is he said the following thing. So... Let's try to balance liberty and equality. Hmm. Let's say we have we have a cake. So this oh yeah, this is a podcast. So we have a cake, a cake, and we want to share it equally. Okay, you take you take this knife, share it in equal portions, and that's it. This is not the reality. The reality is that there are people who are going to make the cake bigger. Hmm. Rolf said, look. They're going to make the cake bigger. You want that to work, you'll have to give them a bigger share. Mm. Otherwise, they may not do it. So, yeah. so let's be fair and say you're making the cake bigger. You get a proportionally bigger share. So that, that's what he said. That's point one. Point two is that's only allowed if you do not diminish the share of what he called the least advantaged. Now... This is extremely important. So you want to have a society where we share the cake, we give a bit more to those who enlarge the cake, but we should prevent giving them a negotiating power, which basically enables them to say, look, we give 80% extremely small pieces of the cake. In that case, we're going to be very sure that they are going to do their best to work hard for us. Hmm. They know they have nowhere to go. And we're going to ensure that the cake keeps growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but yeah, well, I could yeah. say so much. That I is, know. yeah. Before we end this, if you would have just one piece of advice to give to those of our listeners that are not, you know, Facebook or Google and Uber don't have the resources, uh, but they still do want to start approaching the topic of ethics with their own attempts at artificial mm-hmm. intelligence, uh, what would that be if you would have just one piece of advice to give them? Actually, I have three, but I will keep it short. So, oh, my first please uh, say, uh, tell all of them then. <laughs> so, the first one uh, may sound boring, but I think it's very important. Get yourself excellent advice on the local, because mm-hmm. it will make you strong. It will make you strong, because you can hold it against your competitors. Excellent advice doesn't necessarily mean you have to go to top law firms. That depends. If you can afford it, maybe you should do that. I don't know, but there are other ways. Uh, try some, look for some NGOs that and, and, and see if they're really good, important. Second, I think if you treat your potential customers and your customers as autonomous agents, even though you're going to use them for your own purpose and that is accepted, you are a business, you're going to contribute, you added value, you're creating added value. Um, if you respect the agency of your customers and consumers, that will give you an edge. I'm, I'm sure about that. But I'm not trying to be naive. If, if you're in a predatory market, mm-hmm. that might be very difficult. So I would then advise get out of that market. 
get out of that market and find another market where the third advice is, and I think this is going to be increasingly important, dumb applications and dumb business cases, so not using uh, machine learning, etc. they may become the new black. Oh, because okay. Because don't have to worry about security, about hacks, about liability, about safety issues. And I, I want to, to illustrate this with a very small story. There was a hotel in Switzerland in a ski environment, five-star. They had, of course, smart cars for the rooms. Um, they got hacked and they were ransomed. So the hacker said that meant their, their, their clients were in their rooms and they couldn't get out or they were outside their rooms and they couldn't get in. Oh, wow. <laughs> So the ransomer said, look, if you pay me 1,500 euros, I will decrypt and everything will, will work. So they they thought about it and said, okay, 1,500 euros. Uh, if, if we are going to get somebody in to solve this problem. So they paid 1,500. It was all solved. Alas, it happened twice more. Two times more, they, they paid 1,500 two times more. Then they sat down to think, and they made a very courageous and interesting decision. They said, normal keys. Mm. normal keys you know this key that you (laughs) and I think that's so interesting because it means that the narrative the the, perhaps it's just a hoax that Mm. by getting data of who gets into their room when when they're going to open their mini bar in the room that that is going to improve your business case Mm. Maybe that's simply not true, but because everybody does it, you think you have to do it. And for some time, people that, that are offered a normal key will say, oh, this is a very old-fashioned place, we're not coming back here. I think it will become a competitive advantage, and being smart means I'm going to do everything dumb, but I'm also going to be doing things smart where it really has uh, an, a potential advantage. So I'm going to play a bit with that. But as much as possible, dump, because that I can oversee. There is mm. no back. Like yeah. I'm, I'm sitting here in my living room. There is a, a bench there. The bench has no backhand. Mm. There is no smart system behind it. That There are no sensors in it. So there's not much about that bench that I do not know that is relevant for me. And for business, I really think that smart combination of keeping certain things dumb, maybe yeah. keeping everything dumb. Yeah, uh, and then is is going to be your competitive advantage. Ah, oh, that is that is great, Mireille. Thank you so much for being with us today. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Okay, great. <laughs> Thank you for listening, everyone. Follow us on our social media channels and look at the show notes for links to our speakers' work. Join us next time for more interesting conversations.